So what I'm going to try and do is sketch out for you the craze for 3D, for stereoscopy, that gripped the mid and late 19th century. I'm going to try my best to leave time for um, not just questions, although we can certainly have questions, but also for you to have a go with a few of the stereoscopes that I've brought along, because stereoscopy is nothing if you haven't experienced it, really. I'm hoping that uh, perhaps some of you haven't and will do for the first time here. So what is your image of stereoscopic photography or stereoscopic imaging? Is it perhaps a viewmaster, uh, one of these marvellous gadgets which uh, I remember from childhood when one went along to see some rather boring relatives who might be handed a viewmaster and asked to admire the, the um, Grand Canyon in glorious Kodachrome. Uh, still very popular, they exchange... They, they, they um, are sold, bought and sold on the internet for considerable amounts of money. Um, that's a fake uh, Viewmaster reel done by a, a wonderful West Coast artist who specialises in making realistic fakes. Perhaps your image has been influenced by Brian May and his wonderful campaign to bring back 3D. 3D. Brian May is not just uh, uh, the key man keeping Queen going. He's also a real enthusiast for 3D, and he's restarted 3D publishing uh, through the London Stereoscopic Company and produced a series of rather wonderful books um, complete with a built-in viewer. So more than anybody, I think, perhaps today, Brian May has been a, an enthusiast, a propagandist for the wonders of Victorian 3D. Or perhaps your image of 3D is linked to cinema, to the return of 3D in the digital era, with Avatar first, of course, Toy Story, converted into 3D, and with possibly one of the best of all recent 3D films, Gravity, a film that really makes use of 3D, especially when seen on a giant screen. I'm not going to talk about 3D on screen, uh, on moving images, but uh, obviously that has done a lot to bring 3D back into people's consciousness. In fact, what I'm going to talk about is um, stereoscopy in the mid-19th century, but it's worth making the point that there's a whole other realm of 3D which is largely unnoticed by the general public. It's technical uses, for instance, in medicine. A lot of uh, young surgeons today are trained using very elaborate 3D uh, training kit, just as pilots have been trained using 3D, and all sorts of... Um, Specialists in doing delicate, difficult things use very high-end 3D um, technology supplied by very large companies. This all happens, as it were, out of sight of those who are interested in entertainment 3D. Here's an example of the use of uh, 3D imaging in uh, microscopy. Uh, it's used by geneticists, by neuroscientists, by a whole range of people working on extremely small things who use holographic imaging which is a, another branch of stereoscopy, to view extremely small phenomena in glorious close-up and in three dimensions. So we shouldn't think that 3D simply rises and falls according to the um, ebb and flow of entertainment media. It doesn't. However, the heyday of 3D, the first coming, if you like, was undoubtedly the mid or the second half of the 19th century. And this is one of a an interesting group of paintings that were executed 
at the point where it was a new fashion. It's a rather beautiful uh, genre piece, a group of women sitting around having tea and using their stereoscopes uh, to look at stereoscopic photographs. 1868. What had led to 3D emerging in the mid-century? Well, we have to go back a little bit to look at a very important revolution in spectacular imaging, which occurred at the end of the 18th century. A lot of 19th century developments, as you probably realize, actually happened first at the end of the 18th century. It's a rather false division um, to think of these centuries as separate. The decisive moment, I would argue, was when Robert Barker, a painter who had developed um, a form of gigantic painting, um, first of all in Ireland, and then he'd shown it in Scotland, in Edinburgh. He came to London in 1792, 1793, and he opened The Panorama in Leicester Square. Um, if you know Leicester Square, and if you look at the side of Leicester Square, if you look, um, let's see, just there, uh, just before you turn into the square, you will still see that double door, the entrance to the original panorama, which was there. And actually the building survives as uh, the French Catholic Church on Leicester Place. The panorama opened in 1793 and it was a huge, huge success. It was quite expensive, cost three shillings to go in. It soon featured in all the guidebooks to London, things to do in London, go and see the panorama. The feature of the panorama was that it had two galleries. Barker's panorama, unlike everybody else's that followed, had two viewing platforms. It's a really large structure. And this gives you some sort of idea of what the effect would be from the inside. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any panoramas in Britain any longer. So you can't experience the effect of entering a pan panorama. But here are pictures taken from two that do survive. If you find yourself in the Netherlands, it's worth going to The Hague, to the Mesdag panorama, where you can see uh, a wonderful seaside, um, wraparound seaside scene. Dates from 1881. But the single most impressive that I know is in a tiny town in northern Quebec, uh, Saint-Anne-de-Beaupré, where the cyclorama of Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion awaits your gaze. There's recently been a scare that this is about to be sold and possibly demolished, but it really is one of the wonders of the late 19th century world. It's a truly astonishing sight. The panorama took off massively, and panoramas were built in most of the cities uh, of Europe, right across America, where they were also extremely popular, and as far afield as Russia and South America. The panorama swept the world uh, in the first half of the 19th century. But around 1822, uh, a modification, or perhaps an improvement on the panorama, appeared. This was the work of Louis Daguerre, uh, a painter uh, who opened his diorama. You can see that ama was what you would add onto the word to show that it belonged to the same class of entertainment as the panorama. We have some pictures of the diorama building in Paris. Um, that's an engraving which shows a fine sign across the front of it. That's an even better view that shows you how it was placed in relation to street life in central Paris. Um, and that's a picture of Louis Daguerre, taken by 
means of the process to which he lent his name. Now, the panorama, uh, the diorama, sorry, I'm getting my armors in a mix, um, is an interesting device. It's quite complex. Uh, we had at least two, maybe three or four in London, um, Marks and Spencers, the, is the building, uh, the black uh, marbled building of Marks and Spencers on Oxford Street, that stands on the site of one of London's dioramas. This gives you an image of what was happening inside. Basically, an audience which can be seated or standing is watching a view which is being wound around by an operator here. And actually, what's being wound is the platform on which the audience is seated because there are two scenes typically in a, di a diorama. And up here is a shutter that controls the lighting which falls on this painted scene. So typically what you'd get, and these are two of Daguerre's originals, what you'd get is a, a daylit effect and a nighttime effect. You get that sense of the passage of time, key feature of a typical uh, diorama experience. They could be quite narrative, but mostly they were scenic. And just to give you a, a sense of what Daguerre was trying to achieve with the diorama, he was a painter. Uh, this is one of his paintings. Tremendously atmospheric, full of a sense of light, a sense of how light shapes and molds the landscape. Most of Daguerre's paintings are of that type. And here is one of his most famous. This is Roslyn Chapel um, in Scotland. And you can see that in his painting, Daguerre is really focusing on the depth effect. And this is crucial, I think, because the panorama gives you a sense of depth. The diorama also gives you depth. And so, in a sense, they're paving the way for the next step forward. But along the way, another crucial development. This is largely thanks to Louis Daguerre. Louis Daguerre is experimenting with another Frenchman, Nieps, Nicephore Nieps, and together they find a way of fixing an image, an image that is soon called a photographic image on a piece of metal. They try all sorts of different compounds, but eventually they find a way of capturing uh, an image and then fixing it. And Daguerre gives his name to one of the earliest forms of photography, the daguerreotype. These are two daguerreotypes. Um, on the right is uh, Delacroix, the painter, looking suitably romantic and heroic. That is actually an early enthusiast for the photography and all new media, uh, Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's consort. That's an early uh, daguerreotype of Albert. This is the process. Um, it's quite a complex process to make a daguerreotype. It's a single photographic image. Um, it's fixed on a plate, usually a metal plate. And as you can see, there's quite a lot of stages from exposing the plate through fixing it, mounting it, etc. So this is a complex process, not so easy to do. But what you've got is something which was seen as having a, a tremendous value in its own right. A daguerreotype was like a piece of jewellery, a piece of enamel. It's a, it's a form of unique picturing. Very important that this is developed during the 1830s because just in the nick of time is going to come 3D. 
But meanwhile, and more importantly perhaps for, for stereoscopy, in parallel with Daguerre, William Fox Talbot in England is also working on photography. But Fox Talbot's method is not to produce a single unique image on metal. Fox Talbot is concentrating on the color type, as he calls it, which is a negative process. So what Fox Talbot produced is a negative from which you then can make a positive. This is what we essentially think of as photography today, or certainly what was photography during the, the era of paper photographs. And here are some examples of what um, Fox Talbot produced. That's one of his flower studies. That's produced by laying a flower on a sheet of sensitized paper. And that's one of his earliest images taken in Oxford. That's Oriel College in Oxford. Um, and, and these images, of course, really excited architectural historians, art historians, all kinds of people who felt that at long last they could have an image which they could take away and study. Fox Talbot gave his um, manual, his first book about the process, the wonderfully poetic title, The Pencil of Nature. That's from the, uh, an early edition of it. Impressed by the agency of light alone, they are sun pictures and not, as some persons have imagined, engravings in imitation. Now, the other device that we ought to bring into the picture, as it were, of course, is the magic lantern. Because behind all of these new media that I've been talking about, there stands the magic lantern. I say behind because magic lanterns have been in existence since at least the 17th century. Right through the 18th century, magic lanterns are getting better. Um, the kinds of illumination that are used in them are getting uh, brighter. But they're essentially a domestic medium. Right through into the 20, into the 19th century, the magic lantern is essentially domestic. It has a small oil lamp or something like that. It doesn't give a very bright picture. But by the middle of the 19th century, we have um, devices like this, double or even triple magic lanterns. And that's uh, a good friend of mine, Erke Huttemo, the man who coined the phrase media archaeology. And that's him giving a talk uh, in Stockholm a couple of years ago uh, showing a picture of himself engaged in a magic lantern show. The relevance of this is that the kind of lantern slides that are being shown by the middle of the century, once photography has arrived, are what are called life model slides. That's a typical um, slide from a narrative sequence which is posed in a studio and then hand-coloured and this is typically what audiences for Magic Lantern shows would have been able to see by the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. These could be sets as big as 20, 25, 30 slides, which would take you through a complete narration. Dickens was illustrated in life model sets from a very, very early stage. And some of his stories, like Christmas Carol, Gabriel Grubb, uh, like especially, these were subjects of, of many, many lantern slide versions. And then, in 1838, a professor at King's College, London, professor of experimental philosophy, Charles Wheatstone, reads a paper to the Royal Society called Contributions to the Physiology of Vision, 
part the first on some remarkable and hitherto unobserved phenomena of binocular vision. And this opens the floodgates, opens the way towards stereoscopy. No one had actually experimented to discover the basis of binocular vision. In the course of his experiments, what Wheatstone realized was that actually if you separate the images that the two eyes are receiving and then recombine them, you can give the illusion from two flat images of an image that has depth. That's a very simplified description. That's one of the illustrations that he uses uh, for the device that he built to illustrate it. That's a kind of DIY version of the mirror stereoscope, um, which comes from a, a, a recent blog where somebody just sets up a couple of mirrors. And if you look at that, separate the, the uh, images that are reaching the two eyes, you will get the two images combined. That, 1938, is, 1838, is the basis of the um, realm of stereoscopy that opens up. Now, that's um, a text by um, Wheatstone, the beginning of 1839, just the year after. This is happening quite quickly about six months after the appearance of my uh, paper at the Philosophical Transactions, that the photographic art became known. Soon after, at my request, Mr. Talbot, the inventor, um, obligingly prepared for uh, me stereoscopic Talbotypes of full-size statues, buildings, and even portraits of living people. So that is a Talbotype, as uh, Fox Talbot called his process. Stereoscopic. That's Charles Wheatstone himself, seen stereoscopically. And that's David Brewster, Scottish um, polymath, really, who invented one of the most effective forms of viewing stereographs. Um, if I show you, I'll just uh, show you what, what Brewster's device looks like. This is the most effective simplest form of uh, stereoscope. This is a Brewster lenticular stereoscope. It's got two lenses. You open the, um, the mirror to direct the light in, and as soon as you hold it up to your eyes, the outside world disappears and the inside world becomes visible. It's a, a very clever device. And this really would be the basis of what I've called the stereoscopic craze that develops um, in the wake of Wheatstone's discovery. Um, it coincides more or less uh, with the process that leads up to the Great Exhibition of 1851. Um, the crowning achievement of uh, Prince Albert, the not always fully appreciated consort of Victoria. Um, it was very much Albert's idea, or at least he was one of the major supporters of it, and of course it was a, a spectacle unlike any ever seen before. This gigantic, pal this gigantic palace built um, in Hyde Park. Um, this is one of the many images of the opening of the, um, the Great Exhibition in May uh, 1851. And this became in many ways the, the lift-off point for stereoscopy. 
It had existed for nearly 10 years beforehand, but there were lots of stereoscopes being demonstrated at the exhibition, and there were lots of images of the exhibition available as stereographs. Here, I don't know whether you can read this uh, easily, but uh, I hope you can. I'll just read it out in case you can. This is an extract from Queen Victoria's journal. Victoria kept a journal every day of her life, and we in Britain can read it for free. Uh, the publishers of the online version obviously did a deal so that the, um, you can read it if you're territorial in Britain, you can just look it up, and you can even word search it. So if you do a word search um, on, on uh, Crystal, for Crystal Palace, you come up with this. Uh, outside all the princes were standing. In a few seconds we proceeded, Albert leading me, uh, Vicky in his hand, Bertie holding mine. The sight as we came to the centre where steps and chair, in which I did not sit, was placed, facing the beautiful crystal fountain, was magic and impressive. God bless my dearest Albert and my dear country, which has shown itself so great today. And that's Victoria waxing lyrical about the, uh, the spectacle of the Great Exhibition. But that is a version of the Great Exhibition done as a peep show, which opens like a kind of concertina. And that's just one example of the kind of depth-related devices which were so popular at the time, which were used, in fact, to amplify the sense of spectacle of the, um, of the Great Exhibition. And that is another journal entry from 54. I put that one up because there you can see Queen Victoria, who was a real enthusiast and a connoisseur of photography, along with Albert. She goes along to an exhibition of what will become the Royal Photographic Society when they give their approval to it. And um, she recognises Mr Fenton. That's Fenton, the photographer, who, of course, photographed the Boer War, who belongs to the society, who explained everything. There were many beautiful photographs done by him. Professor Wheatstone, the inventor of the stereoscope, was also there. Victoria had a large collection of stereographs. And if you look through the journal, you'll find her referring to it from time to time as something which she would do. That is um, a daguerreotype of Victoria, one half of a stereoscopic daguerreotype, uh, which, of course, I can't show you on screen. The other way that stereoscopy reached um, an even wider public was through the Holmes stereoscope. Now... Um, I brought along one of these, if you can get a sense of it. This is a very much simpler device. As you can see, it's the kind of open plan, uh, ventilated version, whereas the, the Brewster st uh, stereoscope is a, a nicely made wooden construction, quite a lot of craftsmanship involved in that. This is something really very simple indeed. It could be wood, it could be aluminium, as this one is. It's uh, open to the elements, and it's cheap. The inventor was um, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, not to be confused with the justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, that was his son. This is Holmes, one of the Boston Brahmins, a man of great leisure, great refinement, a writer, a poet, a photographer, and an enthusiast for stereoscopy. And to spread the gospel of stereoscopy, he, um, he invents this, this simple version. And this is the version which sells in tens 
hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. Nobody knows, obviously, how many stereoscopes were sold, but what we can say is that by the 1860s or by the 1870s, um, the idea of everybody being able to own a stereoscope is not so remote. Holmes wrote a wonderful essay, um, which is published in the Atlantic magazine in 1859. It's online. You can easily read it. It's a wonderful piece of writing. It's uh, lyrical, enthusiastic, obviously, to an incredible extent. And it gives you some sense of the excitement that stereoscopy bred in people of Holmes's generation. I've just given you a, a short quote from it here. Infinite volumes of poems that I treasure in this small library of glass and pasteboard. I creep over the vast features of Ramesses. On the face of his rock-hewn Nubian temple, I scale the mountain crystal that calls itself the Pyramid of Cheops. I pace the length of the three titanic stones of the walls of Baalbek. Um, one of the earliest subjects for stereoscopy was indeed the wonders of Egypt. And uh, I'm particularly struck by this because I'm actually off to Egypt tomorrow morning to see these full size. Um, but uh, I'm struck by the fact that I know these uh, spectacular sites, of course, as almost everybody in the world does, through photographs of them. But the earliest photographs that people saw and circulated around the world were stereo photographs. So people saw Ramesses, the pyramids, Luxor, they saw them in stereo before they saw them as flat images in a book. And also Holmes makes the point that, of course, the stereoscope wasn't just for spectacular scenes. It could be used to look at close, at closely at um, plants, insects, and all sorts of things. So this is the era when the spectrum of possibility is being stretched from the very large, the very distant, the very spectacular, to the very small, the almost invisible. Microscopic stereographs are also part of the offer. There's a tremendous range of types of um, stereoscope. I mean, these are just some examples of the types. Um, you can see that they, they, there's a cabinet version over there. That's very popular, which you can load up with 20 or 30 uh, images in advance so that you can flick through them. That's the, the sort of um, the, the more upmarket domestic model. Uh, there's one which means you don't have to actually hold the stereoscope. You can um, let the piece of furniture do the holding for you. That's a box version. And there's the Holmes um, stereoscope. So this has become an industry, a very big industry, perhaps a forerunner in many ways of the industries of optical entertainment that will develop later in the 19th century and, of course, into the 20th century. just want to quote you a little bit more from Holmes's um, article in the Atlantic magazine. The effect, the first effect of looking at a good photograph through the stereoscope is a surprise such as no painting ever produced. The mind feels its way into the very depths of the picture. The scraggy branches of a tree in the foreground run out at us as if they would scratch our eyes out. The elbow of a figure stands forth so as to make us almost uncomfortable. 
then there is such a frightful amount of detail that we have the same sense of infinite complexity which nature gives us. A painter shows us masses. The stereoscopic figure spares us nothing. All must be there. Every stick, straw, scratch, as faithfully as the dome of St. Peter's or the summit of Mont Blanc or the ever-moving stillness of Niagara. So what you get, of course, is um, a huge expanding repertoire of subjects for the stereoscope. Um, I'm hoping that many of you have already looked through a stereoscope, but as I say, I'm going to try and finish in time so that if you haven't, you can come and have a look for yourself, um, because it is really important to experience it. And let, while we're talking about the mechanics of stereoscopy, let me just point out that the stereo illusion isn't seeable by a certain proportion of the population. This may be between 5 and 10%. usually reckoned to be 7 or 8% of people actually can't see the stereoscopic illusion. Um, it's also the slowest of all the optical illusions, which means that if you quickly pick up a stereoscope and look into it, the first reaction is often, I don't see anything. You have to let the illusion settle in. Of all the optical illusions, it's the slowest one to develop. It requires a kind of re relaxation of focus to work best. Obviously, it's a pretty rare experience today. Most people aren't used to doing this as a matter of course. But in Victorian times, we have to assume that a whole generation, several generations of people, learned to see stereoscopically. Now, the companies that took up the challenge or took up the opportunity were um, quick off the mark. By the 1860s, there are companies producing enormous numbers of new sets of stereo cards. And this is just to look into the future. Um, those are some examples, for instance, of stereo coverage of the Anglo-Boer War down there. Uh, I've got, brought along a complete set, the Boer War in two volumes, as published by, by Underwood and Underwood. There are some others. And right up until the First World War, there's a surprising amount of stereoscopic coverage of World War I. And if you really want to get a sense of what it was like at the front or in a trench, go to a stereo view because it gives you a, a, an intimacy of experience which you certainly won't get from other flat photographs or from moving pictures from that period. The first... The earliest supply of stereographs was supplied by sort of um, more or less domestic uh, labor. Families would often turn towards to, to making uh, stereographs, and there's a, an image of such a manufacturer. But the London Stereoscopic Company was the first big company with a kind of global reach set up in London in the 1860s, um, as you can see, proudly proclaiming photographers to Her Majesty and um, plying their wares. They ran through the 1860s into the 1870s. Um, and it's that company, that title, that Brian May has revived in his uh, stereo publishing. But the biggest of the publishers was almost certainly Underwood and Underwood. These were two uh, brothers, um, originally from Illinois, who started their business um, in Kansas, in Ottawa, Kansas, Elmer and Bert Underwood. 
Then they moved to Baltimore and finally to New York in 1891. It was the Underwoods who took stereo, the stereo offer to a new level. They published at their height 25,000 views per day. Just think about it. They introduced the library case uh, that I've shown you down there. And they began to think in terms of series. They went on innovating in terms of what you could offer for sale in photography uh, right through the, decade, the first decades of the, the 20th century because they could see that their business depended on novelty. It depended on offering new kinds of photography. And in fact, they became pioneer press photographers and agency photographers uh, as we move into the 1920s. Then came another company. Um, oh, that's, uh, those are some box sets by, by Underwood. Um, as you can see, Travelling in the Holy Land, one of their big hits, comes as a, a two-volume set. And that's some of their promotional material, implying that really, thanks to Underwood, the world is within your reach. Not unrealistically, if you look at the range of what they were offering. And that is just to give you some sense of the sorts of holdings that libraries which have collected stereographs still have. Um, that's the Library of Congress in Washington. They have 8,000 stereographs available online, representing 15% of the, um, they estimate, 52,000 stereographs produced from the 1850s to the 1940s. So that's a, a big collection in Washington. And that's a collection from the University of Chicago Library, which is broken down into genres and types, biblical themes, general themes, books. So you begin to see that the modeling of these libraries, the shaping of the libraries by, by, by for instance, Underwood and Underwood, it's following library principles. They're thinking about how the knowledge of the world and the culture of the world, and the culture of travel, how they can be represented in stereographic sets. This, of course, will influence the way film develops from the 1890s onwards. Uh, my friend um, Artemis Willis kindly sent me this picture, which she holds up. Um, this is from, from Chicago. She has made a special study of the Keystone Company. And these are some Keystone images um, astronomical images, which she's turned into a, a very interesting um, Magic Lantern show. Keystone picked up where Underwood left off. And Keystone realized that this could become a real educational tool. And they made a set called the Keystone 600, which they marketed vigorously to schools and colleges all over America. This is through the 1920s, and 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, so that schools would have sets of stereo, stereographs, which could be used with classes to study geography, astronomy, science, a whole range of subjects. So this is really um, stereoscopy flowing into the classroom as um, an early visual aid. Of course, this never happened in Britain. The culture of British education has been resolutely uh, resistant to visual aids for much of the early 20th century and indeed has continued to be so until the arrival, perhaps, of the, uh, the electronic whiteboard 
which is now a pretty universal feature in British schools. But up to that point, Britain was not in the forefront of visual education, whereas America was. The method of selling is also interesting because basically the Keystone sets and the Underwood sets as well before them were sold by door-to-door salesmen, the kind of salesmen who were selling encyclopedias or Bibles. So it fits into the culture of um, salesmanship, which is particularly important in America. And a new development... Um, I've only discovered this fairly recently when I was thinking about this lecture. This is a new book, uh, just published last year um, by the University of New Hampshire Press. It's a study of a genre which I think most stereo enthusiasts probably didn't realise existed. These are narrative sets produced for essentially women. And some of the themes are themes dear to the heart of progressive women in the later 19th century. So here we have... uh, a woman telling her husband to get on with doing some housework. And there we have another woman pushing over, uh, I think, a, a rather feisty would-be suitor telling him to get lost. The narrative stereograph turns out to have been quite a substantial genre. And uh, Melody Davis has made a, a study of these and written uh, a very interesting book about them. There's another important new development just towards the end of the century which really takes us into a new new realm of stereoscopic experience because the stereo has been essentially a a solitary um, form of spectatorship. Uh, Of course, you you could pass around the stereoscope and everyone in a group sitting around the table could view the same image. But uh, August Fuhrmann... Uh, a German um, showman and optician developed what he called the Kaiser Panorama, the Emperor Panorama, um, at the end of the century. And the Kaiser Panorama is putting together a circular group of individual stereo windows with chairs. And there you have a, an engraving of it, but there's an actual photograph of what the effect is, bent wood chairs, The system is automated so that using glass stereo images, these drop down at a regular interval in front of you and they rotate so that everybody sees a complete set if they sit in front of the spectacle for, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. So it's a program, a timed program, which the entire group can witness. Now we have, fortunately... um, a great piece of literature, just as we have um, uh, that, that, that wonderful piece uh, that I've quoted to you by Wendell Holmes uh, describing the effect of the stereoscope in the 1860s. Here we have Walter Benjamin, uh, one of the founding figures of modern um, visual and media studies. Walter Benjamin, who'd grown up in Berlin uh, around the turn of the century, wrote a memoir called The Berlin Childhood around 1900. And this is Benjamin's, this is an extract from his uh, account of the Kaiser Panorama, which he loved. For him, that was one of the most nostalgic memories he had of old Berlin. There was no music in contrast to films. He thought the Kaiser Panorama was better than film. Um, 
There was a small, genuinely disturbing effect that seemed to me superior, the ringing of a little bell that sounded a few seconds before each picture moved off with a jolt in order to make way first for an empty space and then for the next image. And every time it rang, the mountains with their humble foothills, the cities with their windows, the railroad stations, the vineyards were suffused with the ache of departure. Again, a, a rather wonderfully poetic, quite idiosyncratic account of why Benjamin remembered um, the, the uh, Kaiser panorama. The lesson, I suppose, that I draw from the Kaiser panorama, these were very popular. It has been estimated that there were at least 200 of these spread across Central Europe. Certainly there was one in Stockholm. I've seen the building where it, it sat. They were especially thick on the ground in Germany and in Austria, I think in Switzerland, um, right across the middle of Europe, the Kaiser panorama was a normal urban experience. Um, it's a kind of newsreel, but it's not dedicated to news as such, although Foreman developed a range of photographers who would go out and bring in new subjects so that the program was changing very rapidly. Um, it's a little bit like um, a sort of television experience, I suppose, an individualized form of the television experience in some ways. I mean, we can draw all sorts of uh, uh, anticipations out of the effect of this, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't rush to say it's a quaint, forgotten, um, outmoded form of entertainment. In many ways, it's a stepping stone towards forms that we, of course, became familiar with in the 20th century. There is only one version of the Kaiser panorama still in existence, well, two, I think. There's one in Germany and there's one in Warsaw. The Photoplastikon in Warsaw is uh, a version which still survives. Now, why has this enthusiasm for stereoscopy largely disappeared from the histories that we read about? I want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about this. The history of photography was not something that people really thought about writing until, I suppose, the mid-20th century. When they did, a new version of the history of photography began to emerge. It focuses on, for instance, pictorialist photography, P.H. Emerson and his desire to make these wonderful images which are like paintings. So this is photography, in many ways, imitating painting. Not, not that Emerson would have put it that way. For him, it was naturalistic. It was showing in enormous detail. But the sense of composition that Emerson wants is painterly, I think uh, we would have to say. Art photography of the kind that Julia Margaret Cameron practiced also becomes highly valued when the first historians of photography look back and pick out the landmarks of mid-Victorian photography. You'll read in many histories of photography that the way that photography became popular was through the carte de visite, a small printed version like this, which people would order from a photographer and would hand out as a kind of enhanced visiting card. But what that does is to, to blot out the very, very large uh, space that stereoscopic photography occupied. It seems absolutely clear, the more we 
look into it, that from the 1850s, certainly through the 60s and the 70s, it was stereographs, these cardboard images, mostly they were cardboard, though they could be glass as well, which were most people's experience of the photographic image. When you see a Victorian photograph reproduced in a modern book, very often what you're looking at is one half of a stereograph, where the writer or the author neglects to mention that it was originally a stereographic picture. So in a sense, stereography disappears from the received history of photography. And of course, what also happens in the 1880s and the 1890s is the arrival of a new concept of photography, George Eastman's um, Kodak system. You press the button, we do the rest. These were very cheap, immensely cheap. They were produced in enormous quantities. And of course, these popularized a new attitude to photography whereby you did take your own photographs, you sent them off to be processed, and you got back some very, very small, singular images. So in a sense, the trade-off is between singularity, but it's my photograph, versus a stereoscopic picture. Most people were not makers of stereoscopic pictures, although they could be very easily. This is, in a sense, the, um, the exchange, the trade-off that happens in the latter part of the 19th century. What they left behind, what stereoscopy left behind, and it, it didn't suddenly stop by any means, was um, the great sets, the great stereographic um, encyclopedia, um, such as Egypt, Nubia, and Ethiopia by Francis Frith, one of the first photographers of Egypt, A Trip Around the World by Stereo, and this uh, monumental study of Egypt through the stereoscopes, a journey through the land of the pharaohs, volume one. This is a three-volume set um, produced by one of the great Egyptologists of the era who uses stereographic pictures of all the sites of Egypt as the basis of his narrative. So we're left with a kind of residue of the heyday of stereoscopy um, as the 20th century develops. And when the Gernsheims, for instance, write one of the first great histories of photography, they do give due credit to stereoscopy, but it's too late. By that time, people have formed a different timeline of photography. But what about animated pictures? What about film from, the, from 1895? Well, of course, moving pictures are the novelty of the mid-1890s. But one of the founding figures of moving pictures, Louis Lumière, always believed that moving pictures should be in 3D. Why not, he thought. The problem was, it turned out to be extremely difficult to develop a system for projecting the pictures so that the audience could see them in 3D. Taking 3D film was not difficult at all, very simple. But projecting it in such a way that an audience, like yourselves, could actually see it, turned out to be incredibly difficult. Louis Lumière kept working on it, and in 1936, many, many years later, he announced a system for projecting uh, 3D pictures, which he was very proud of. It was his last great invention. But I just want to show you one of his early films, which in a sense, uh, this is a very famous film. If we could have the film. Yep, thank you. This is an extremely famous film, which you will, I think, know well. Um, 
one of the first set of Lumière view. It's called the arrival of a train at La Cierta station, which is near where the, um, the uh, Lumières had their country home, near Lyon. What the Lumières did as experienced photographers was they instinctively composed a lot of their early images on the diagonal. And as you can see, when this train comes into the station, we're looking along it, we get a kind of stereoscopic effect. What early viewers of films discovered was that the sense of movement, the sense of action, allied to the, use, the clever use of diagonal compositions, sort of substituted for true stereoscopy. Again, it's a trade-off. The trade-off was that um, you were getting a kind of quasi-stereoscopic effect, and of course you were getting all the benefits of moving pictures. So it's not quite true to say that moving pictures killed off stereoscopy, but what they did was to provide a new attraction which had benefits, even though the early moving pictures were not in 3D. And in fact, it wasn't for another 20 or 25 years until 3D moving pictures emerge. So, 3D has had a fitful existence um, throughout much of the 20th century. Um, it's always felt as if it's slightly on the margin, slightly on the edge. It's become a province for collectors, for enthusiasts. This is the market um, in Paris, the great the Clignancourt uh, so-called flea market, which has some very fancy uh, and very expensive uh, um, specialists in Victorian photography, including, as you can see, you can buy a, a whole range of stereoscopes. That's where I bought my, um, my Brewster stereoscope. Um, but in a sense, I think the realisation of the importance of the stereoscopic episode from 1840 to the early years of the 20th century has not really been fully taken on board. And what I want to put in front of you is that this is one of the major shifts in the mediation of the world and the creation of modern media that takes place. So much feeds into stereoscopy, as I showed right at the beginning, and so much comes out of it. And the kind of picturing of the world that stereoscopy made possible in the latter part of the 19th century is what feeds the growth of cinema, the growth of television, and the growth of even more modern media. That's why I think we need to reckon with it and take it more seriously. Uh, that's one URL I put at the bottom there, the New York Public Library. If you want to browse a very large collection of, of um, stereographs using a rather clever flickering system that allows you to see them essentially in 3D, go to that website and you can look through the, the holdings of the New York Public Library. But most libraries, most museums... Uh, around the world have stereo collections. They just don't have a regular means of showing them. And it would be very nice to think that uh, in the near future, digital media will allow us to bring these out into the open and allow people to access them. I'm going to stop there because I have managed to finish in, in decent time. And I'm going to invite any questions from anyone uh, and also a chance to have a look at some of the stereoscopes I've brought along. Thank you.